Good day. Welcome to All Things Sedation. My name is Michael Dare, and uh, this podcast is, just as the title says, we talk about all things sedation relating to particularly the dental profession. Uh, visit us at www.dentalregular-ed.com for all your sedation courses, training, and supply and equipment needs. And it's a pleasure to be here. Um, it is March, I believe, the 13th and 2020. And I'm in line at BC Ferries. Now, out here on the West Coast of Canada, we have an extensive ferry system that uh, delivers us over to a multitude of coastal locations and islands. And um, I'm hopping on a ferry that is taking me over to the uh, city of Nanaimo, and then I'm going to head north from there. I'm doing an advanced cardiac life support course and a uh, CPR recertification at an oral surgery practice on Vancouver Island. So, um, And today um, I'm just going to have a brief topic, and that has to do with um, uh, sedation guidelines, uh, standards and guidelines, and, um, and our our sort of duty to make sure that we comply with those standards and guidelines. What I'm talking about is this. Um, in every jurisdiction across uh, developed countries, like here in North America, here in British Columbia, we have either state colleges or state boards or we have colleges. So in British Columbia, we have a college called the College of Dental Surgeons of BC. Now, they have a standard and guideline out that uh, for the area that we teach in, which is mostly minimal and moderate guidelines, or minimal moderate sedation, shall I say, uh, there are very specific standard and guidelines that s state the training that people have to have on the, at the office, what equipment and supplies, how you have to monitor the patient. Basically, it's the rule book that lays out how your practice needs to be completely set up, uh, staff training, logbooks, checklists, emergency equipment, uh, the monitoring of the patient. And these guidelines are very concise. Uh, we have them in Canada here across the board. Um, and through my teaching um, and through my interacting with practices here in BC, I just want to have a little commentary on what I've seen. Now, for moderate sedation, uh, which is sort of the real forte of what dental ed does as far as training goes, and in minimal sedation, the guidelines are very specific about what you have to have for training, etc. And they're also, uh, back in 2013, we had our most recent major overhaul of our standards and guidelines for British Columbia, Canada here. And they stated that they would be doing practice inspections on all moderate sedation practices. So that document came out in 2013. So this is a little jab at the college. We're, uh, we're getting close to the halfway mark of 2020 and we still have not seen any inspections on a ongoing organized basis for British Columbia. Now in the area of deep sedation and general anesthesia, um, that document hasn't been updated significantly since 2008 other than minor revisions um, as uh, some uh, practice standards have changed. Uh, an example would be uh, that um, 
we uh, pleaded with the college back in December of 2016 um, to initiate and mandate immediately uh, the use of end-tidal CO2 monitoring to increase patient safety and and um, and uh, congratulations to the committee that they voted that very night to mandate and require end-tidal CO2 monitoring um, uh, for moderate deep and GA. Now the deep and GA uh, guidelines also have practice inspections and those have been going on uh, for a very long time, um, since uh, well before 2013. And those guidelines, um, you know, I've seen their inspection uh, documentation. It is extremely thorough and very well done. Uh, but we had, a, uh, we had a mandate starting 2013 that they would be inspecting moderate sedation practices also, and that is yet to occur. So, through my work, I have inspected a fair number of practices as a service to say, well, when the, when the College of Dental Surgeon comes, uh, are you ready? So for a while, we offered that service because we had heard that the inspections were imminent. Uh, that was not correct. But um, for a period of time, we did a lot of office inspections, and I still do them to this day where we're teaching a course and they'd like me to go through their office equipment. So here's some observations of what I've seen. And, and, and then I will say, you know, I, maybe I'll make a bit of a plea that, you know, up your game and have a look at how you're set up. I'm very uh, understanding that dentists do dentistry, dental teams do dentistry, and that it's very easy to let the sedation side of the equation fall to the wayside a little as far as keeping up on top of all of the requirements uh, to uh, maintain uh, your credentials to be able to sedate in your practice. But what I've seen um, in all my travels in Western Canada, not just in British Columbia, has been often that the guidelines are not being followed, um, that the checklists, the logbooks are not in place, and that equipment is not in running order. Um, I help practices bring themselves back up to spec um, and in some cases far exceed the minimal requirements. It is something we do. I'm working on a very large project right now to, uh, to help a large practice in British Columbia um, um, correct some deficits that they have at their practice. But here's some of what I've seen when I visit practices. Narcotics are meant to be in a locked location. Usually physically that location is a cabinet, a cupboard, or even more optimally a steel narcotics cabinet that's designed for storing of narcotics. So in our jurisdiction here, benzodiazepines being a sought-after substance are also required to be locked. They're required to have a proper count being maintained with them. You also have to know where the keys are stored for the narcotics cabinet, and that has to be in a separate lock location in your practice. And then you have to have a um, you have to have a small uh, uh, logbook that states who in the practice has access to the narcotics cupboard keys. I constantly come to practices where. 
the benzodiazepines, the fentanyl, etc. It's just laying in a office drawer of, say, the dentist, or it's sitting in their uh, anesthesia cart unlocked. Often there is no count book whatsoever to be found, and they admit that they don't use one. Now, this isn't these aren't inspections or, or my observations from years ago. These are within the last six months, some of the examples I'm giving you. Uh, so not following uh, controlled substance standards that your college lays out. Um, checklists that are required to make sure that equipment is in working order are not in existence. I often find the equipment not in working order meaning the suction does not work, meaning the AED battery is dead. The other big issue that we have constantly when I inspect practices is that medications are missing for the emergency medications or medications are expired. The other thing is many items relating to the emergency management of patients in sedation, um, those items also expire. So very typically things like laryngeal mask airways or eye gel airways are found to be expired. IV administration sets and catheters expired. So the big areas where I see problems are in that the practice is not organized as far as the paperwork goes. So what I'm saying there is you have to have a logbook that states that who has had a mock emergency drill done and in our jurisdiction every moderate sedation practice and above they have to do mock emergency drills on average every three months and any team member that's involved in the sedation team management of patients has to be signed off as having attended a mock emergency drill at least every three months all right and there has to be a logbook with the name of the person attending, the drill that was done, etc., and the date it was done. Um, it's a very rare that I see that this is actually being undertaken at practices. You're supposed to have checklists in place where on any day of sedation, you've checked the oxygen supply, you've made sure the main valve on the tank is on, you've made sure that the AED is in working order, now, most automatic external defibrillators, it's simple. They have a light or a symbol that tells you that the computer system of the AED has done a self-check in the last 24 hours. So it's a very simple step where you walk by, you check the AED, the green light is flashing, as an example in many brands. You tick that off in your checklist, and then you go on to the next item. Oxygen supply is adequate, turned on. Nitrous tank systems are all on. AED is being checked. Portable battery-operated suction is in working order and has been checked and is plugged in. Physiological monitors are plugged in. Vital sign parameters are set. End-tidal CO2 is zeroed. And uh, zeroing end-tidal CO2 means that the machine has a setting where you hit a button and it calibrates the partial pressure reading of the gas to atmospheric pressure in the room. If you don't zero or calibrate your end-tidal CO2 daily, then the numbers it's giving you will be incorrect. All right. So there's checklists for that. There's checklists that need to be in place 
for checking your emergency equipment and supplies and the expiration dates of drugs and that you have everything in place. Right? These are the things I constantly see missing. I have visited practices where the AED is outright dead. I visited a practice recently where the AED pads expired in 2013, seven years ago. I visited practices where they had a laryngoscope with no batteries in it, so they're unable to actually operate the laryngoscope. It would be of no use whatsoever. They have interosseous devices, but they have no IV setups, no IV fluid, no way to administer administration, or no way to administer a medication in that, um, in that uh, interosseous drill device that goes into a patient's tibia in a dire emergency. So what I'm saying is, often what I see is what we typically call the gong show. This does not go past, uh, or it goes well past your general practitioner practice. I have inspected more than one pedodontic specialty practice in the lower mainland of British Columbia, and we had medications missing. We had medications expired. We had the inavailability of the unavailability of the proper size airways for all the size or ages of kids they treated, meaning they did not have the full range of airways for the age range of children they're treating, airway devices being devices that assist us being able to ventilate someone and breathe for them if they're in a dire emergency. I asked them to get their oxygen tank out at one practice, and it was literally in a closet behind a hot water heater and they had trouble getting the tank and the O2 stand out of that area from the copper pipes that were running vertically. Two CDAs over five minutes to bring the oxygen tank out so that we could have a look at it during an emergency course. So we don't report anything specifically unless it was a life-threatening imminent situation. That is not our job as a company. Our job as sedation educators, providers, etc., is to help those practices when we see them to immediately tell them what's wrong and how to get up to spec. But this is obviously a very big issue out there. All right. I've been to practices where the bag valve mass device is obviously at least 30 years old. It's a brand and a design that I have not seen in decades inside a hospital. And then the device was so broken down that the rubber of the bag valve system was breaking down, oxidized, and would roll off in particles and drop to the floor if you rubbed the device at all. These things are not in working order. They are out of date, etc. Bag valve masks with oxygen tubing missing so you can't hook it up to an oxygen source. Bag valve masks with the wrong mass sizes for the ages and, 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 and sizes of patients that you have. So again, I understand that dentists who do sedation often get very busy in the running and the management of a dental practice and in the care of general dentistry, etc., to their patients. But if you want the right to sedate, you must meet the bar height guideline that society demands to say, hey, if you happen to ever have a serious medical emergency at your practice, sedation related or not, we have this minimal bar height that we want you to meet 
to be able to have the privilege to sedate the public safety. And I know there's people listening that are working at practices where that bar height is not being met. So how do you know what you have to have? Well, you need to look at your jurisdiction, your state, your province, your territories, documents. Who governs your ability to state where you work? So here in British Columbia, we have a college, the College of Dental Surgeons of BC. We have two main documents. I just tell people, Google College of Dental Surgeons of BC and then Google sedation guidelines. And you're going to get the two main documents for our area as downloadable PDF files. Those documents are like your Bible of what you are allowed and not allowed to do, etc. It tells you what every member of the sedation team's responsibilities are. It tells you what an RN is allowed to do. It tells you what the responsibilities of a CDA, uh, which in, in, this, in our area, that's called a certified dental assistant. Your chairside assistant. What are they responsible for during sedation? What training must they have? What medications can they handle? So you all have these guidelines, and, and it's your responsibility that those guidelines are printed off, those standards and guidelines are printed, and they're available in your practice so that you actually know again, what am I supposed to have in place? What am I supposed to do? All right? We're all in this for safety, all right? We have a world crisis going on right now, the COVID-19 virus. We have people panicking. We are the healthcare professionals. We have professional standards in the delivery of dentistry. You have professional standards for what is expected of you as a sedation provider for the delivery of sedation services. So if you're the dentist listening who owns a practice who does sedation, if you're the office manager listening who works in a sedation practice, you have to find the time to make sure that everything is working order. I think right now probably well over 50% of practices in British Columbia in our area here in Canada would fail if they had a moderate sedation practice inspection they would have failed to meet the guidelines all right i don't think that's different than anywhere else i think that's probably very similar across the board but i think the college of physicians or sorry the college of, uh, the college of dental surgeons of bc would be quite shocked if they actually started the inspection process so don't wait for that to occur people right just think, if I'm sedating my own children, not that I'm allowed to do that, but if I had my own child being sedated somewhere, what level of care would I like? What level of charting would I like? What level of equipment preparedness and emergency preparedness would I expect if I took my child somewhere to be sedated? And then apply that to the very practice that you work in and the sedation services you give. All right, on a happier note, well, not happier necessarily, but um, yes, uh, back when uh, COVID-19 was just coming out in an earlier podcast, I discussed how bad of a cold I had, and my wife also got it, and, and it's over a month later now, and we still have the very, very last residual effects of that cold. I still sneeze at times, and I cough at times, 
And I'll tell you, in the in light of our pandemic that is occurring at this time, um, you certainly do not want to sneeze or cough around other people. It, ca- it creates panic in their eyes. But um, um, due to the fact that I've been fairly sick with a really bad winter cold, we caught the cold in, in Saskatchewan. Um, I ca- my wife comes from a little town called Kenora, Saskatchewan, not Kenora, Ontario. So we did have a very bad joke at one point calling it the Kenora virus. But uh, having a world pandemic and creating ap- economic chaos and fear is, I guess, not something to joke about. Uh, but um, I'm glad to be back doing a podcast. I grabbed my microphone uh, recorder today as I headed out to travel for a course. And, um, and I'm really glad to be on chatting with you again. Now, I have three adult children. They range from ages 22 to 26. And I'm a pretty tech-savvy guy for age 57. Uh, But I'll tell you, they're mocking me big time right now because when they heard that uh, I'm having a podcast, an educational podcast in sedation, uh, they started listening and giving me feedback and they were making some jokes, definitely. But they had a great idea. And this is the one thing is, is uh, my son in Toronto said, oh, the, the followers, the people who listen, dad, you know, you have to call them the sedation nation. So there you go, folks, uh, from, uh, from, my, uh, from my adult, young adult children, who I hope are staying safe in, in this time of a pandemic here across the world, is uh, that they'd like to call those who subscribe to the Sedation podcast called All Things Sedation, that you folks are known as the Sedation Nation. Uh, now, if they had said that term to me before I started the podcast, you never know. I could have named the podcast The Sedation Nation. has a good ring to it, but I think we'll stick with all things sedation. Also, so you know, we have a Facebook page. Uh, it's just starting to get going. I'm going to start leading some uh, topic discussions there. Um, and it goes also by the name All Things Sedation. So uh, come and join the uh, Facebook group. Uh, we will be uh, hoping getting the getting the pot stirred as far as people uh, making comments and questions about their sedation concerns and issues, experiences they've had with patients, questions uh, to the group, etc. Um, so come and join us there. And again, uh, my name is Michael Dare. I'm the CEO of Dental Ed, and uh, feel free to contact us at Dental Ed if you need any courses, right from CPR training to PALS advanced cardiac life support, minimal sedation training courses, moderate IV sedation training courses, um, and of course all the equipment and supplies. www.dental-ed.com. Have a good one, and I certainly will try not to have three to three and a half weeks between podcasts. I'm back on my feet um, and trying to stay healthy And for all of you out there, we're in this together. Stay safe, stay healthy, wash your hands, sneeze into your elbow, and practice social distancing. I was actually on shift in an emergency department here in Canada when the very first SARS patient arrived in Western Canada off an airline, very ill um, from Asia in 2002, I think that was. 
and I was on shift as that patient was being intubated and ventilated, and we had this terrifying new disease called SARS. We've gotten through SARS, we've got through MERS, we've gotten through the swine flu. We will all get through this, um, so stay safe, and until next time, thanks, bye.